so good to see um, all of you this morning in the house of God. It's a great, it's a great nice rainy day um, after all the dry spell that is happening. It's been so hot in it. Um, it's a good rainy day. I'm going to start off this sermon with, um, can I just call the dads in this place to join me in laughing at dad jokes? Dads, when is a door not a door? D-O-O-R, pintu. When is a door not a door? When it's a jar. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Not bad, not bad, not bad, not bad. Thank you, thank you, thank you. One more, one more, one more. Dads, 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 you have to know this, dads. Fellow fathers, fellow fathers in the house. Uh, as we wait for the communion men to pick up the, the cups. Um, fellow dads in the house, um, how do trains eat? Trains. How do trains eat? They choo-choo. So good. Two weeks' time is Father's Day. Thank you for all the dads for working so hard uh, so that all of us can choo-choo in our lives. Bring your father for Father's Day in two weeks. Um, don't worry, Pastor Sean. Get married, get kids, and you will join the dad, the dad, dad joke club. Uh, yep. And we fellow dads will laugh along with you. Lame or not lame. Good morning, church. Um, you know, today we're continuing in the book of Luke. It's a Luke series, so I mean, if you have been with us for quite a while, uh, you know we're in the book of Luke. We're studying the book of Luke, and somehow today, we've ended up in chapter 13. And you know, if you, if you know book of Luke, chapter 12 and chapter 13 is, honestly speaking, one of the more difficult passages in the book of Luke. It's, it's difficult to digest, difficult to explain, difficult to understand, and more of more, to top it all off, it's difficult to preach because the Word of God is sharp, the Word of God is true, and the Word of God does not mince. So today, um, I want to bring to you a very sobering message from the book of Luke chapter 13. It's really sobering, but I want you to know that the Word of God goes to you even though in truth, it also goes to you in grace. So I want you to hear it in grace. I want you to uh, receive the Word of God in, in, in all the grace that God wants to give you this morning. So I want to ask, are we ready for the Word of God? We okay? We are ready? Our hearts prepared for the Word of God? Yes? Okay. Luke chapter 13. I want us all to... Uh, let me turn on this. Turn this on. Okay. I want us all to read this together. I'm only going to talk from nine verses, but we're only going to read five first because we're going to read the rest of the four later on. So there's uh, uh, five uh, verses, and I want you to read it solemnly, and I really want you to absorb it because the word is going to pierce your heart like a double-edged sword. Is that all right? All right, let's read it together. One, two, three. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he said, answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent you will all likewise perish. Thank you, God, for the word. Thank you for your word. I pray, Father God, Holy Spirit, you speak to our hearts this morning and you just open it up with a double-edged sword and you just convict us because your word is truth, but I also know your word brings grace into our life. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, I titled my sermon this morning, Flourish or Perish, because there's no escaping it. You know, uh, if you read the chapter, it's repent or perish. Um, but flourish is a nice uh, rhyme to the word perish. So flourish or perish. And I really want to explain the context of Luke 13. Because un until we understand the context of Luke 13, we may not understand the richness of Luke 13. Is that right? So it starts off here. The, there were some present at that very time. You see, there, in Luke 11, 12, 13, 14, there was a crowd of people that were following Jesus, listening to what Jesus is to say. And out of those crowds of maybe 4,000, 5,000, it could be even 10,000 people following Jesus, there was some present. So it's not everybody of the crowd, but there were some people in the crowd 
at that very time who questioned Jesus. So at the time, uh, there were some present at that very time who told him, who told Jesus about the Galileans. The Galileans are people who lived around the Sea of Galilee. The Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now what does this mean? What does it mean and why did they have to tell Jesus, they have to go and tell Jesus about um, this atrocity that happened? You see, what it means is this. The Galileans were probably at the temple of God. And they were probably offering sacrifices in a temple. So we, one can deduce they're probably a priest in the temple of God, uh, a person who can uh, offer sacrifices. Is that okay? Uh, that's the inference, that's the deduction here. Now, as you offer sacrifices at a temple, back in those days, you had to give a dove, you had to give a lamb, or you had to sacrifice a bull, whatever it may be, but it's a living sacrifice, which means that you have to kill, you have to cull the animal, and, and the blood would flow on the altar. But the atrocity happens here is Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea at that time, for reasons only known to himself, which was not recorded in the Bible, so we don't need to speculate why he did what he did, but he entered the temple and he decided to kill the priests, the Galilean priests. That he did, he did, I mean, I don't know why, um, neither do we need to know why, but he decided to kill the priests, which means that as the priests were laid at the altar, the blood of the priests that were just killed was mixed together with the blood offering sacrifice at the altar. Now, we don't know when this happened. Of course, it has to be in the lifetime of Pontius Pilate. We don't know why it happened. We only know that it happened and how it happened. So I guess the Bible is not interested in telling us the why or when it happened. But now we got to ask ourselves, why do you think that these group of small people, or uh, small group of people, or group of small people, um, we also don't know if they're small or big, let's put it that way. Um, big size, small size, tall, short, don't know, but sorry, what I meant to say is, um, why did this small group of people have to go to Jesus and tell Jesus of this parable? You see, there are always going to be people in your lives and in my lives and in this world, and we could be one of them, we could be caught in that act, that we are always going to question the other person. We always want to call the other person out to find whether the person has a flaw, to find whether the person said something wrong, so that the moment the person said something wrong, we give them a trap. We trap them and say, hey, I called you out. You are a false prophet. You are not a good leader. Uh, I'm better than you, whatever it may be, right? There will always be groups of people that are critics that will be always trying to tear you down. And I believe it is the same group of people that is trying to tear Jesus down. Just like um, another parable is when people ask Jesus, um, who do we pay taxes to? Do we pay taxes to God or do we pay taxes to Caesar? And they wanted to trap Jesus. This is the same scenario. But what is the trap that they wanted to trap Jesus in? You see, it's a predicament that they put Jesus in. If Jesus sided the Romans, which is Pontius Pilate, in killing the, the, the Galileans, if Jesus sided the Romans, they would then be able to use that and tell all their Jewish friends that actually this Jew is a betrayer. This Jew is a traitor. He's actually a Roman sympathizer. He is for the government and he's anti-Jew. And therefore, he is on the same plane as tax collectors in those days. They are pariahs of the Jews because they support the Roman government. So they will be able to gather all the Galileans against Jesus. So Jesus didn't fall in that trap. But at the same time, if Jesus were to come out and support the Galileans and say the Romans should not have killed the Galileans, that way it's brutal, I do not condone of this attack, then this small group of people will be able to use Jesus' words and go to the Romans' officials and say, this Jew is anti-government. This Jew is anti-establishment. He should be caught, tried, and put in jail. So no matter who Jesus supports, Jesus is in trouble. No matter who Jesus uh, uh, leaned towards, they will use it against Jesus to bring Jesus down. That's the point of verse 1. And that's why verse 1 exists. But Jesus being Jesus. You know, th this sermon today is going to be a bit more heart-hitting and we're going to get more and more heart-hitting as the time goes on. But I pray that you love the Word of God. And I know this is the Word of God. And in SIBKL, we not only preach uh, uh, grace and mercy all the time, but we also preach truth in love. We also preach what God wants to teach us in this time. You see, when Jesus speaks, and when you ask Jesus a question, even in now times, or when you even commune with Jesus, have a relationship with Jesus, we may ask Jesus one thing because we want one thing, but Jesus knows our heart. 
And Jesus will always address the spiritual life that we have. The heart of the matter is the matter of our heart. And Jesus don't even bother answering whether he supports the, supports the Romans or the Galileans. He just totally ignores it because it's not the point of anything. But then he goes into verse 2. And he deals with the matter of the heart. And he looks at them and he says, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And I truly believe that's the word of God for us today. Now, what does this mean? You see, the Galileans, the small group of people, held the belief, held the assumption that I guess some of us, if not all of us, fall under from time to time. That those who suffer are sinful. And those who do not suffer, perhaps less sinful. So let me go into assumption one. More sin, more suffering. That's the assumption that Christians make. That's the assumptions the Galileans make. I mean, don't you think? I mean, just search your life and search what comes out of your heart and your mouth sometimes. If something bad happened to another person, you go, something must, he must have sinned. He must have done something bad to deserve this. God is judging him. There is a tragedic judgment upon God, upon his or her life. Don't you, don't you think we find ourselves falling into this kind of train of thoughts from now, now and then? More sin, more suffering. So therefore, what are we trying to prove when we make statements like that? What are we trying to prove? Or what were the Galileans trying to prove? It goes to show that every time you say statements like that, that I'm a better sinner than you. I admit I'm a sinner because we are all sinners, but I'm a better sinner than you. So I'm trying to elevate my position because nothing bad happened to me. Something bad happened to you. Therefore, you must be the worst sinner compared to me. So I feel good about myself. And I guess that sometimes we feel that way. We always want to feel good about ourselves. And we make that assumption. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to deal with this assumption. And I'll deal with it later. I want to talk about it later. But first, search our hearts. Have we find ourselves having these train of thoughts, having these assumptions made about other people, and we find ourselves very judgy, very judgmental, and we look into other people's lives, and we call them out for their sins, but we feel good about ourselves. Assumption number one. Assumption number two, Jesus said, I mean, assumption number two, what they had. They thought that they had the right to make such judgments. The Galileans thought that they had the right to make such judgments. And God says that's an assumption. Number one, you don't have that right to make that judgment. Who gave you that right to make that judgment? Whether somebody has sinned more and therefore more suffering has happened to them, more sickness has happened to them, uh, cancer has happened to them, uh, you have sinned more. Who gave you that right to make that judgment? It's probably what God is asking. What makes you think that your one plus one equals two? What makes you think? And therefore, God called this group of small people out and gave them a mild rebuke. But here's Jesus' conclusion that we should all take home. Number one, let God be God. And I guess that's what Jesus is telling us this morning. Let God be God. You see, when a tragedy happens to you or a tragedy happens to someone else, don't go around and proclaim judgment on that person as if you are God? Because only God will know why it happened to that person. And you see, the interesting thing is here in verse number one, God never explained to the Galileans why the Tower of Siloam fell and killed 18 people. God never explained why Pontius Pilate had to go into the temple and slaughtered all those Galileans. God never explained why. They never explained why. And you know what God is trying to tell us today? Sometimes we don't need to know. It doesn't matter the why, because that is only for God to know. Let God be God, and we are not. And we love to play God sometimes. We love to pronounce judgment on some, some, someone else sometimes. And we love to say all these things, 
And then God clearly already said, before you say something about someone else, take the logwood out of your own eye first before you try to pronounce judgment on the sawdust in somebody else's eye. You see, there's a lot of times, and I know everybody, including me, sometimes I always ask, God, why does this happen to me? God, why, uh, why does this happen to that person? God, why can't I have a more chilled, relaxing, good life without any suffering? And God, God says, that's not for you to know. But I have a purpose in the plans. The why it happened and when it happened, it's for God to know. And sometimes we like to say, oh, you're going to heaven. I'm not going to heaven. You're going to heaven. This person is not going to heaven. And God says, is saying very clearly today, let God be God and only He will be the judge. There is only one judge, one adjudicator and one jury. And His name is Jesus Christ. And unless you want to claim to be Him, which I don't suggest you do, we don't play that role. Our role is to love. Our role is to be the light. Our role is to be the salt. Our role is to pray. Our role is to bring you into the loving arms of Jesus. Our role is to disciple. Our role is to baptize. That is our role. Let God be God. Because at the end of the day, in Revelations, when the second coming of Christ, He will play that judge. He will be that judge, that judicator, and that role. And we trust Him to be a good judge, a just judge, a merciful judge, and whatever the sentence this judge says is absolute. We just trust. Let God be God. That's conclusion number one. Don't assume. Let God be God. Conclusion number two. We're so good at examining other people's lives. And the whole reason God brought this up is to say, stop talking about other people. Examine yourselves repent. That's the point. Examine yourselves and repent. Don't waste your time, your life examining everybody else's lives, whether they are right, whether they're wrong, whether they did good or did bad and you want to teach them and you want to, you want to show them how it's done and you want to say that I'm better than you and you're not as good as me. I've got more experience than you, more wisdom than you and you start pointing your fingers. We're examining everybody's lives and then God clearly says in His Word, examine yourselves. It's not even first, and then you can examine others. No, it's just examine yourselves. Repent. You repent, or you all will likewise perish. And that's an imperative. That's a full stop. There is no comma. Examine yourselves. So I like, I like this. Don't spend your time in spiritual speculations. Spend your time instead in godly repentance. Don't spend your time in spiritual speculations. Spend your time instead in godly repentance. You see what? I've said it before. We love to speculate everything spiritually. You know, we probably bring our worldly habits into our Christian life, right? I mean, I don't know how many of us here, we love to speculate when the economy is going up, when the economy is going down. We want to speculate when the OPR is going up, OPR is going down. We want to speculate what the stock market is. You know, we want to speculate the devaluation the, the of the ringgit or the, the appreciation of the ringgit when it gets better. Then we want to invest or we want to buy this, buy that. Or oh, it's time to go to Singapore. Let's wait for the ringgit to rise a little bit more. We want to speculate so we can book our air tickets. You know, whatever it may be, you know, we love to speculate in this world and hopefully it happened. And sometimes we bring the same practice into church. And we start speculating on everybody's lives, you know? And that's sometimes we have quarrels in cell. We have quarrels in the families. Because we just, we just love to do that for other people. But God is reminding us today, spend your time examining yourselves first. Because what can spiritual speculation do? Let me ask, do you think spiritual speculation, judging whether somebody has sinned more or sinned less than you, do you think that spiritual speculation will build your faith? No. Will it help you be closer to Jesus? No. Will it help you get into heaven? I don't think so. I almost can guarantee you it will not. I guarantee you what will happen at the very last day of all our lives when we go and see Jesus and Jesus asks you, what if you have one thing to say to me? And then if you give him a long list of speculation about everybody's sin but yourself, I guarantee you that is not the ticket to heaven. I guarantee you. So what would spiritual speculation do for us? We like to speculate which church is better than this church, which we like to speculate which cell is better than this cell, which worship team is better than which 
which worship team. By the way, all worship teams are good because it's not about how good the quality of the music is, but it's about how our heart connects with Jesus. Amen? And you know, after a short break, I just want to thank the youth team today because the youth team is like worshiping the whole weekend. So good. Um, it's really, really good. You know what's good and encouraging? I want to invite everybody to always encourage our next generation as if they're your children. Um, it could be your spiritual children because we believe in the next gen. And I believe that the heart of the worship today is not about the methodology. It's not about the greatness of voice or the on what key of the beat. But the heart of worship is about the, the heart of worship. And I believe the next gen, the youth, they carry that heart of worship. I really believe that we're genuine in praising and loving God as we are. Amen? Amen? So let's not waste time in comparison and spiritual speculations because that will not earn you a drop of iota in the kingdom of God. It will do you nothing. But I tell you and I guarantee you what comparison and spiritual speculation will do for our lives. I guarantee you, it will bring about self-righteousness. You think you're so grand. You think you are the judge of the world. You think you can condemn everybody and point out everybody's flaws, but you don't see yourselves. It brings self-righteousness. And I guarantee you, it brings you spiritual blindness. Because you are not able now to see the things of God because you're so against the things of God. You're blind to what God wants to do in your life. But spend your time instead sowing into the kingdom, sowing into your life through godly repentance. You see, godly repentance is not only just about the position of sorry. The position of sorry is probably position one in repentance. You need to be sorry. You need to know you did wrong. You need to understand why you went wrong, how you went wrong, when you went wrong, what you did wrong. Yes, of course. And then you need to feel wrong. You need to feel like you're sorry. But feeling like you're sorry doesn't change much in your life, now does it? Godly repentance is walking and following after Jesus every day. I choose the way of Jesus and I would change my behavior. You see, if you're a chronic liar, for example, you can lie the first time and then you can feel very sorry and everybody will believe you're genuinely sorry. But if you don't stop and you don't make an active will to stop yourself from lying, you can lie the second time, the third time. You can lie for the 500, 1,000 time and you can say sorry a million times. After the fifth time, would anybody believe you? No. So we've got to change and walk and follow Jesus. And that will build our lives in the kingdom. That will contribute to our faith. And it's not easy walking after Jesus, now is it? It's not easy walking with Jesus because it's a deliberate step to turn your back against the ways of the world and to follow Jesus all the, all the days of your life. But I ask you, is it worth it? Yes. And God is calling you into daily Godly repentance. Don't worry about everybody else. Worry about yourself. And come into the repentance of God. And then God says, good and faithful servant, well done. Because he doesn't stop here. The verse continues. And I really like how the verse continues. Now, as I read, I'm going to read this portion. I'm going to read it to you. You're going to listen. But I want you to ask yourself one question. What the similarity between verses 1 to 5 and 6 to 9 is perish. God says you will perish. But 1 to 5 says you have to repent, otherwise you will perish. Then verse 6 to 9 is about the fig tree. So I want to ask, you have to think, what does the parable of the fig tree got to do with repentance or perishing or whatever it may be, tragic events. What does it got to do? So read, I'll explain. Verse six, and then he told this parable. So in the ASV it says, and he told this parable. In the NIV it says, then he told this parable, which goes to show that immediately after what happened in verses one to five, he then tells a parable, which goes to show that this parable has everything to do with verses one to five. All right, there are no two separate stories, it's one, one singular story. Then he told his parable. A man had a fig tree, the owner had a fig tree, planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. 
Why should I use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, the vine dresser answered the owner, Sir, let this fig tree alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure, put on fertilizer around this fig tree. Then if it should bear fruit next year, praise the Lord, hallelujah, well and good, leave it there, it's bearing fruit. But if not, you can cut it down. What does the parable of the budding of the fig tree have got to do with repent and perishing? I really want to explain. I like this picture. I'm going to put this picture up for a little while. This is the picture that I can find that is copyright free. (laughs) The fig tree. There are better pictures out there, but I had to pay for it, and I did not want to pay a cent because I'm Asian. Okay. <laughs> let, me, let me just be real with you, right? That's true. All right. But this is a, a good copyright-free picture. It's, it's a good picture of a fig tree, but I, what I wanted to show is a younger, younger fruit. See, this is fruit in the middle. It's already a little bit big. Um, I, I wanted a budding one. I wanted a, pic, a picture of a budding fruit tree. See, the, the point of this is fig leaves are huge. I don't know if I've seen a fig tree in full blossom, but I, I'm guessing it according to the internet, it's about this big. It's huge. And a fig is about this big, right? It's, it's, the proportion is it's, it's a little bit outrageous. The leaves are way bigger than the fruit. So when the owner said that he had to seek the fruit, he had to look for the fruit, I want you to imagine a huge tree, and this owner had to comb through every leaf. He had to push the leaves aside, and he has to look for this fruit the budding fruit that's in between the leaves, and it's thick, it's luscious. Just imagine, you know, like a big rambutan tree, not a durian tree. Durian trees, you can easily see the fruit, right? But a rambutan tree is a little, a little harder, at least, at least for me, that is, right? So you've got to comb through it and to really find the fruit. You see, the owner is looking for fruit. The owner of the fig tree. The same thing here. Who is the owner? God the Father. He owns the vineyard. He owns the garden. He owns the church. He owns your life. He owns my life. He gave you life, therefore it belongs to Him. He owns the universe. That's God the Father. He's the owner. Who is the vine dresser? Jesus Christ. He's probably the gardener. He's probably coming to prune. He's probably coming to teach. He's probably coming to uh, fertilize you, give you springs of water. So when the owner comes looking for fruit, the parable applies to our lives because God the Father is always coming into your lives, into my life, to look for fruit. He's coming into all our lives and He's always combing your lives to look for fruit. And He's looking. He may not look for it every day, but there is always a season that He will come and He will comb through your life. And trust me when I tell you, when God the Father combs through your life, there is nothing you can hide from Him. You can hide everything from people, You can hide everything from your counsellor if you have one. You can hide everything from your boss or your wife or your husband if you have one. But you cannot hide anything from God. And when He comes to your life, my question is, are you bearing fruit? Can God the Father find fruit in your life? Because He will search and He will look. You see, some of us, some of us, maybe not all of us, I don't know, some of us, or maybe none of us, hallelujah, We always have leaves. You see, in the analogy of fig tree, leaves are like forms of godliness. It may not be, it may not be, but it can be forms of godliness. Just because we jump around in worship, which I I do all the time, and I love it, by the way. I've been jumping since I was 24, received Jesus uh, 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 for the first time in my life. I love it. But sometimes God can ask, Isaac, why are you jumping? Is it a form of godliness? Are you trying to prove that you're spiritual? Okay, no. Okay. No, I love to jump because that's how I express my, my worship. But he, he, would, he would comb. He would look. He would look into your life. Why are you attending church? Is it a check off your list? Or do you want to come and experience the presence? Do you want a word from God for you? Will you change? Will you allow the Holy Spirit to work in your life? Or is church just another checklist? I've got to attend church because it's a good checklist for me. Why are you attending cell? Why do you proclaim to, have a Christian, uh, to be a Christian? Are you really one? And God will comb through your life and there is nothing you can hide. And He looks for fruit. Are you bearing fruit today? That's question number one. Let's move on. And He said to the vine dresser, 
And God said to Jesus, Look, for three years now, I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should I use up the ground? Now, this is a difficult verse to say as a preacher and as a pastor. So I'm going to caveat it before I say it. I'm going to give you the truth. I'm going to give you the whole truth of what the passage really means. But as I say it, I want you to know that I, I would say it with all the pastorly care and the love that I have for each and every one of you, that I'm not here to condemn, that God is just here to convict. Is that okay? All right. It says this, when God comes through your life and he does not find any fruit, the reality of the situation is God will say to us, cut it down. And this is not the only time in the passage, which means that there are further proof, which means that God wants us to really listen because there would be a time where there would be a sifting of wheat. Remember? When God says, if I find nothing, there will be a sifting of wheat and then there will be gnashing of teeth. And I want you to cast out uh, uh, the wheat and throw it into the fire and burn it up. They will go like shaft. So it's either you'll be cut down or you'll be burned up. But the conclusion is the same. If there is no fruit in your life, God says He will cut it down. Now this is a very difficult thing to swallow. This is a very good, difficult thing to understand. But God, I thought you were the God of grace. I thought you were the God of mercy. I thought you saved my life. What's happening here? Let me explain and let the parable explain itself because it's not just that. God, Jesus then said, God then says, why should I use up the ground? That's the big why. You know, if you are an agriculturalist or a horticulturalist and, you know, and you're planting a tree and the tree bears no fruit and you could have, in that place, you could have planted a good mango tree, durian tree, apple tree, whatever, kiwi tree, what? Is there a kiwi tree? Is it a bush? I don't know. Okay, whatever, jiku tree, you know, I could have, but I spent three years on this tree and it has produced nothing. I would have might as well get rid of it and plant a tree that will produce fruit because I need to eat and I need to sell the fruit for income. And it's the same thing here. I will humbly, very humbly, with all the love that I can say, Christians, God is the owner of the garden and the vineyard. We have proclaimed SIVKL as our church. And there are many good churches out there, so it's not just our church, there are all the other churches out there, it's the same. It's one, God owns all the garden, God owns all the churches, God owns all the, 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 the vineyard, all right? But in this church, because this word is for this church, every day, every Sunday, God encounters you in worship. There is a presence of God that comes down in worship, that He wants to have communion with you in a relationship with you, and He wants to speak to you. Every Sunday, there's a word of God preached. It's not about the preacher, but it is about the word. And he wants to do a transformation act in your life. The Holy Spirit wants to move. The Holy Spirit wants to have a value change in your life. Every Sunday, every Wednesday or Friday, there's a cell group. Or Thursday, or whenever you have your cell, there is a cell group that in the community, you, you confess one another's sins, you, you, you encourage one another, you edify one another, you spur one another on to meeting and doing godly things. Every week there is some feeding and God says, I gave you my son, Jesus Christ who died for you. He is your living water. He is the gardener that would prune you, he would discipline you, but yet he would feed you, he would nourish you, he would, he's your fertilizer, he is your water, he is your soil, he is your air, he is everything. But where is your fruit? If there is no fruit, God says, you cut it down because I might as well use the same ground, your same chair that you're sitting in, your same bed that you sleep in. I might as well use it for somebody who will want to come to know Jesus and bear fruit in his life. That's what it means. It's not easy to hear because we, like, we always like to hear Jesus loves me for who I am. But this is it. And God says, I want to see fruits because I've given you I've planted you in the right place, in the right time, with the right people, with the right conditions for you to flourish. He is waiting for you to flourish. He's given you everything to flourish. And the only thing that stops us is us because we don't examine ourselves, because we don't repent and follow Jesus. We follow our own way instead of Jesus. And God says, useless tree, cut it down, throw it out. But Jesus being a good intercessor, give me one more chance. Let me work on this tree a little bit more. And that's why we love Jesus so much. We love God the Father. We love all the whole Trinity. We love Jesus. 
Because Jesus would say to our lives, God is a good person. Give them one more chance. He can change. She can change. You used to swear. You can change. You used to be addicted to something. He can change. You used to lie, cheat, and steal. He can change. I believe that He can change because the Holy Spirit is with you. You can change. But after chance, after chance, and God will always give you a chance. God will always give you a chance. God will always give you a chance. At the the end of the day, if there's still no fruit, you can cut it down. Three things that we learn from this parable. Let me go into three things. Number one, evil seemingly go unpunished does not mean that God approves of sin and evil. It only means that God is patient and merciful. If we're doing something wrong in our lives, or if people who don't know Jesus out there are doing something bad and evil in their lives, and we always ask God, God, why do you allow those evil men to continue to flourish and do evil things, and they can come and persecute me as a Christian, and you allow them uh, to flourish? Why, God? Does it mean that God condone evil? And sometimes we look in our lives or look into other lives of other Christians. Why? I'm a better Christian than, than he or she is. I don't cheat. I don't lie. I don't steal. I'm not addicted to anything. I'm a, be- I'm a much better Christian. But why is his life so much better than my life? Why? Is it because you condone evil? That I might as well do evil things. That I might as well be bad because apparently bad people get good things. And God says, no, that's a false assumption. And God says, just because I permit I seemingly permit for a time for evil to go unpunished does not mean I condone evil and sin, but it only acts to show you the grace, the patience, and the mercy God has on your life and even the lives of people who don't know Jesus because I believe Jesus came to die for everyone. If they come to repent, I believe Jesus will receive them into the kingdom. It's everybody, not just Christians. So I want us to always remember, we don't look at evil and be evil because we want good things. We look at evil and we say, thank you, Jesus, because you have been gracious and patient with me that I don't end up doing evil things. Thank you, Jesus, for you are a good God, a just God. And one day you will punish evil because you will still chop trees down. But let it not be me because I want to be in the kingdom. I want to repent and I want to follow after you. I will rejoice in you. That's point number one. So don't ever accuse God that way. Don't ever think that you can do evil and get away with it because God will always comb through your life and look for fruits. If not, He will cut it down. That's point number one. Point number two. Executions and accidental deaths are not definitive signs of God's judgment. The languaging is clear. They are not definitive signs of God's judgment. It does not mean that some events are. We leave that to God. But some events may not be. Let's not be the judge. Let God be God and let us love God. But a fruitless life, judgment is certain. Don't waste your time speculating about everything else. But when the Word of God has already said that if you do not bear fruit, there will be a cutting down, there will be a throwing out, there will be a burning in the fire, then let's take God's Word as God's Word. We know what God has told us and we don't need to know what God has not told us. Because if He's a good God and He's an all-knowing God, He knows that we need not to know. So let us remind each other, a fruitless life, judgment is guaranteed. And it's only a matter of when. So don't live that way. Don't live a life that way. I have a third point. And with this, I want to close. My third point is this. What does the parable got to do with verses 1 to 5? Fruitfulness is a sign of godly repentance. Fruitfulness is a sign of godly repentance. I guarantee, almost can guarantee, 
that every one of us here, you may have a friend, a family member, or a loved one, or a child, or a parent, doesn't matter who. You have somebody in your life that perhaps have constantly, constantly uh, 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 hurt you, offended you, constantly, the same thing all over and over again. And the person keeps saying, sorry, 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 sorry. After a thousand sorries, I think I can guarantee all of us here would say, I don't say Onila. Don't do, just say Onila. Don't know whether you mean it or not. After a thousand sorry, just stop Onila. You know? Your, your, your words means nothing. Your words becomes you know, useless, meaningless, worthless. But how would you be able to judge if somebody is truly repentant? Just imagine someone next to you. If somebody has hurt you, they won't do it again. If somebody lied to you, I won't do it again. I will never lie to you. I'll be truthful to you all, all the days of my life. If somebody has been disloyal to you, betrayed you, repentance shows that I will now continue to be loyal to you and I will never betray your trust. That is true repentance. That is a change in my life. If you have a simple example, if you, if you don't wash the dishes and you said sorry a thousand times, a thousand and one time, you now start to wash the dishes without being told, without being asked. How about that? That is a sign of repentance. Amen? Don't you think we want to be, you know, have a family that's, that, that, that is this way? Don't you think we want to have friends that are this way? Or loved ones that are this way? But don't look at others. Start to examine ourselves. Are we this way? We all want this in other people, but we've got to examine ourselves. So fruitfulness is a sign of godly repentance. There needs to be an evidence of your repentance. There needs to be proof of your repentance. We don't even talk about spiritual things. In this life, we also need proof of repentance that somebody is truly sorry, somebody is truly sorrowful, that they will change. What more God? And what is the sign that we have repented before God and walked and followed Jesus? Fruitfulness. That's the sign. It does not earn you your salvation because that is a full justification in the work of the cross. But fruitfulness is a sign of your repentance that you are following Jesus with everything that you have. And what is fruitfulness, church? What is fruitfulness? Galatians 5.22 is fruitfulness. It is not only just about I serve more, I commit more, I live in church, whatever it may be. It is not about I read my Bible. Every day I finish the Bible, you know, from cover to cover. That's good, by the way. If you can do that, hallelujah. Tell me your secret. It's good. It's good. But that's not the fruitfulness that God is talking about. The fruitfulness is a heart change. It's an attitude change. It's Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. These are the things that show that you have followed Jesus. These are the things. I want you to imagine when somebody looks at you and you go, I see... I see nothing of Jesus Christ. You know, you are uh, as, as good a liar as me, if not better. You cheat more than me, if not better. Right? You, you, you have addicted more than me and you, have to, you teach me how to be addicted some more. I see you, I don't see Jesus. Fruitfulness is when we reflect the image of God. We reflect the goodness of God. Oh, are you more loving in your life? Or you're, you're just, oh, I don't love people. You know, God loves, God is training me to love more and more people. He's really doing a work in me. And I find myself, this is the true story, every year I'm learning to love people more and more and more and more, to be more like Him. Are you, do you have the joy? When you go through sufferings, when you go through trials and tribulations, do you have that joy of the Lord? You may not be smiling every day, I understand. Nobody smiles like that through a storm. It's either your mental, something's wrong with you, you know. Thank you, Jesus, you know. For, for these trials. But you have the joy of the Lord because God says, I am with you. No matter what you go through, I am with you. I will give you that unexplainable, unending joy that lives in your heart. You have the peace of God. Or you're always constantly worried. You're more worried than the non-Christians out there. You know, the people that don't have Jesus, you, you are more worried, you're more anxious, you're more concerned. And Jesus says, no, where is the peace of God in your life? Because the shalom of God will always come upon your life. And even though you have a thousand problems to fix, there will always be the peace that guards your heart through it all. Are you more self-controlled? This is tough. I believe this is the last fruit, so to speak, because it probably is the toughest one. Self-control. Do you rage? You can't control your temper. You can't control your anger. You can't control, you know, there's a, I love this thing. You put two sweets in front of to toddlers and you tell them, right, if you don't touch a sweet in 10 minutes, I come back, I will give you two sweets. 
But if you eat it now, you only get one. And we always test the self-control of toddlers. But I always think to myself, actually, if you do that to adults, I think more adults would fail than the toddlers. If you put a phone in front of you and it's buzzing, all right, I have to check my WhatsApp. I must check who messaged me on Instagram. I must check it now. There's no self-control, right? You're addicted. We just don't know it, don't want to admit it, that's all. All right, we have to pull up our phone every time. All right? Self-control is tough. More faithfulness, goodness, you're more kind, you're more patient. And this is where I want to end. I want to implore for all Christians to be patient with one another. Because you see in this parable, God says He waited for the tree three years. He waited for the tree three years to look for fruit. You know what it shows? God is a patient God. He waits for you to show fruitfulness. But we as Christians, what we love to do is, the moment the person says sorry and admits that they are wrong, that's what, hallelujah, number one, miracle number one, you answer my prayer, Jesus, thank you, then we expect the next day, the very next day, the person must turn around 180. The person must be a more loving person, more kind person to me. Otherwise, we will say, that's a fake, that's a fake sorry. I don't accept your sorry. No. If God treats us that way, I think all of us will perish tomorrow or today, right now. God doesn't treat us that way. God waits for us in patience for us to grow into fruitfulness. Thank you, Jesus, for being patient with us. Thank you, God. And, he, and I want to implore, can we be patient with one another? Because a cell leader to cell members, if a cell leader don't like the cell members, pray for change. Wait three years. You cell member, you don't like cell leader? Pray for change. Wait three years. Is that okay? Don't expect tomorrow to change. If husband don't like wife, pray for the wife. Wait three years. They'll be in that marriage for three years. Same, vice versa. Right? Wait, if you're praying for a child, lucky want the child to change, wait three years. If not, give them discount. Wait four or five years for the child to get better. Right? Let's be patient for one another. If there's something, you know, there's no perfect church. If this church that is not perfect, we're going through change. But be patient with one another. Not the building, the church, the people. Be patient with me as I'm patient with you. Because it is in our patient and our brotherly love to one another that God says, I've called them as a chosen people, a royal priesthood. These are my people. These are my sons. These are my daughters. Because I'm a patient God, they are a patient people. I'm a loving God, they are a loving people. Amen? Amen? And you know, my last ending, I promise you. So we ask ourselves, so I strive, I strive to change. It's in my effort to change. I strive every day. I beat myself if I don't change. I strive to change. Is that the attitude? No. We don't strive to be the things of God because we can never do it in our own strength. And here's the beauty. The beauty is when God wants you to be fruitful, God is also the fertilizer. God is also the oxygen. God is also the soil. He's also the water. He's also the nutrients. And it is not me that would change, but it is Christ in me that will make me change. It is because you have the Spirit of God that is in you that you can change. And you can be a better person and you will rise to be a better person. The effort that God is asking you to put in will be effortless when we have the Spirit of God working in us and the grace of God that pushes us on and the mercies of God that catches us when we fall and the love of God to embrace us while we are journeying that change. It is in this Christ that we believe in that we ground our faith, that we know we will produce the fruit. One day the fruit will come. In season the fruit will come. But when I am not in season, I will walk with Jesus. I will continue to come to church. I will continue to read my Bible. I will continue to pray. I will continue to worship. I will continue to be one with Jesus, one with the Spirit, because only in my union with Christ that I'm guaranteed a change. And therefore judgment is averted because I am now one with my Saviour and one with Christ. So don't strive in your flesh to change. Don't beat yourself up and condemn yourself. But instead, always rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And it's Jesus that will help you finish the race. Fight this good fight that every day we're fighting. 
we hold our tongues. We, we hold our fists and unclench it. And it's Jesus that works in us. So you know, I don't want to do an altar call today because it's a hard word. It's a hard word. We don't want to be cut down. We don't want to be cast out. But what I want to do is, I want to, can I invite all of us to stand? And I want to have a solemn moment with Jesus. A solemn moment with Jesus because there needs always to be repentance. None of this fruitfulness start unless there is repentance in our life. You can't bear fruit unless you repent. So I want to give you 20-30 seconds to honour God and to just come before Him and do step number one. He says, God, I'm sorry for the things that I've made it. Give me the strength to follow you all the days of my life. I'll give you 20 seconds. Just be quiet before God. Then I'll pray for you. Thank you, Father God. Lord Jesus, help us. Give us the strength. Give us the grace for our race. Give us that mercy, Father God. Help us, Lord Jesus. Have godly repentance before you. Show us the wickedness of our ways. Show us the fallacies of our ways so that we can always constantly repent before you because I am responsible for my spirituality. That's it. I am responsible for my own spirituality. No one else is held responsible but my own, Father God. So help us, Lord Jesus Christ, walk every step of the day. Help us to be fruitful in our lives. Fruitful, bearing fruit with each other, Lord Jesus. Help us to be more loving, more joyous, more peaceful, more patient, more gentle, more good, more kind, more faithful, and help us to have self-control in our life every day, Father God, so that when our friends and our family look at us, they see Jesus. They don't see the sin and the, 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 the wrath that, God, that we have in our, the wretchedness that we have in our lives, but they see Jesus. They see the face of Jesus. And I pray, Father God, that we will always be great ambassadors for you the light of the world. When people have fruit, they will come and rest under our shade, eat the sweetness of our fruit, taste the sweetness of the fruit of, 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 of Christ's work in us so that they can also have transformation in their lives. So Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray for grace for every single person here, Father God, to never, never give up and to always journey this race. I pray for grace. I pray for mercy, Father God, so that Lord Jesus, you will catch us when we fall. When we stumble, you catch us. I pray for love so that your love will envelop us, your love will hug us, your love will pull us close to you so that we know we are secure in the arms of Christ. And I pray, Father God, that none of us will be able to boast that we change because of our strength. But if we were to boast, we boast in the finished work of Jesus Christ. We boast in Christ in us because it is not us. We thank you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus, for you are a good God. Thank you, God, that you are the owner of this garden. Thank you, Jesus, for being our great vine dresser. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for always comforting us, pruning us. We thank you, God, and we give you glory for this race. So, Father, Lord, separate us today with your, with your peace, your love, your wisdom. We thank you, Father God, and may your face always shine upon us. May you watch our going in and our going out and always grant us shalom. We thank you, Lord. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you, church. If you're a visitor, come and say hello to us at a connect counter or the hospitality. Otherwise, have a great week. God bless you.